Beloved saints of the living God, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's give our attention to the reading of it. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell them, tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. And now if you will, drop down with me to verse 56. I'm going to read 56 through 66. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. They provoked Him to anger with their high places. They moved Him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, He was full of wrath and was utter, he, was utterly rejected, he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and invented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and the young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. The Lord awoke from his sleep like a strong man shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. Uh, Let us ask God's blessing on our time in his word this morning. Our most gracious Lord, our hearts are prone to wander and our minds are slow to understand. We confess that we are not by nature people of your word. And so we ask that you would be present among us, that you would speak to our hearts, you would illumine our minds, and that you would give us ears to hear your most holy truth, we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. Seventy-two verses long. <laughs> How do you handle a psalm like this, right? Some of you are probably thinking, great, we're going to be here till dinner. Uh, others might think, ah, it's, it's a longer, take a few weeks uh, to look at it. And, and that works definitely with some psalms, but, but not really with this, this one. It doesn't really afford any obvious ways to break it up into to multiple parts. And that's in large part because verse 2 tells us it's a parable. It's a story uh, that holds together as, as one unit. And, and we've seen some parables in our study of Luke. Uh, a parable is a story with a point. It's meant to teach something. Um, and uh, it, it, you're meant to, to, to not just learn history, 
but learn a lesson. Uh, Some parables are made up, like the story of the prodigal son. Uh, Some are rehearsals of history with the hope that you would learn from those who have gone before you. Uh, And that's what Psalm 78 is. It's a rehearsal of Israel's history, hoping that we would learn from those who have gone before us. More than this, uh, it, it makes it clear that the hope is then that we would pass this lesson on to our children and their children, to future generations. Because it is the responsibility of every generation to teach their children the truth and to call our children to pursue God. But what does it mean to pursue God? Uh, it seems that we're not always clear about what that means. We, we talk about certain words like maturity, uh, becoming Christ-like, uh, growing in the Lord. But we don't often know what that means. Or, or we define it in ways that are most easy and comfortable to us. In other words, uh, ways that appeal to our strengths. Ways that challenge us the least and that make us feel good and don't cause too much discomfort. Uh, But the thing is, what it means to pursue God, what it means to grow in maturity, is not ours to define. The prerogative for that belongs to our God himself. And he does that for us in this psalm. And so when it comes to you, God, God tells us that pursuing him means that he demands your life, how you live, that he demands your mind, how you think and believe, and he demands your heart, what you love, and to what you are loyal to. In other words, God demands it all. We don't get to pick one of those three. He wants all three. Uh, And so I promise that there is something in here to make everyone a little bit or a lot uncomfortable. Uh, No one will escape this psalm without seeing at least one, if not more, areas where growth is needed. But that's okay. Because we have a God who meets us in our need with, with, wonderful, with wonderful provision, uh, His mercy, which we find in His Son, Jesus Christ. And all of that is wonderfully uh, conveyed in uh, this psalm, Psalm 78. Now, when I say uh, God wants it all, uh, what I mean is that we tend uh, to divide our lives into uh, different boxes. And then what do we do? We focus on one of those and pretend that the other ones don't exist. So Christians like to decide what kind of Christian they are. Uh, You will hear people say, like, I'm not one of those touchy-feely Christians. I focus on what's important doctrine and truth that's their box truth or you'll hear someone say I'm not into doctrine or theology I just love Jesus that's their box love or someone will proudly stand up and say what really matters isn't your doctrine but what kind of life you live we have to take America back take a stand against abortion and the gay agenda or something like that that, that for them, it's not so much what you believe or how you feel, but what you do. Now, as with all of the devil's lies, there's going to be a kernel of truth in every single one of those. 
But the problem is when we take each one to an idolatrous extreme. And in that idolatrous extreme, we fail to honor our God the way he requires. Because God does care about how you live. And God does care about what you believe. And God does care about your heart. He cares about all three. What's more is that you can't truly have one without the other. You can't love God without knowing Him. And if you know Him but don't love Him, that's an abomination. And if you love Him but don't honor Him, you see, they all work together. And that's what this psalm, Psalm 78, presses home. It it tackles each of these in a unique way. And so first, let's look at your life, your obedience, how you live. There are some who say that as long as you believe in Jesus, it doesn't matter how you live. In fact, there are uh, books written trying to defend that idea. That you're saved by grace, they say, and not works, which is true. But what they say then is, so therefore works are optional, which is not true. What's interesting in this psalm is, why did I read a section of verses at the beginning and then almost at the end? Because those two sections address how Israel failed to obey their God. How they forsook his call to obedience. This this psalm begins and virtually ends with a call to obedience. And God is angry because, because his people were not taking obedience to him seriously. Verse 9, God says, I said go, and the Ephraimites didn't go. They refused to obey his commands. And verse 58 says, and it provoked, they provoked God to anger for it. And then goes on in verses 59 and following to say, and they brought down punishment for it. God was so angry that that he even abandoned that temple site in Shiloh. We talked about that a few weeks ago uh, as we were looking at Jesus' judgment on the temple at the end of uh, Luke's gospel. He required that his tabernacle be moved to an entirely new city, one that was not defiled by the people's sin. That's how it ended up in Jerusalem. So this idea that God does not care about how you live... This idea that that obedience to him is optional is so contrary to the Bible that you would virtually have to ignore every page of scripture to believe it. Because your actions simply show what's inside. Your life is a reflection of your heart. Your actions can't bring peace with God. Your actions can't save you. But you cannot truly belong to Jesus Christ and not live a changed life. God says you know what kind of tree it is by what kind of fruit it bears. That's a parable. The idea is we know what's going on in your heart by what you do with your life. This is why why God requires discipline in his church. Because when sin continues without change, it tells us what's inside. And a church that is not willing to hold its members accountable is opposed to God and to his word. Beloved, God wants obedience. He wants your life. It's not all he wants, but it's definitely one of the things he wants. But he also wants your mind. Let me read verses 17 through 22. You might just want to keep your Bible open because we're going to keep going back to it. 
Uh, hopefully we do that every week, but you know what I mean. Verses 17 through 22. Yet they sinned all the more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread to provide meat for his people? Therefore, the God, therefore God, the Lord, heard, and he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger arose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. Because they did not believe in God and trust in his saving power. Beloved, we can distinguish between what you believe and what you do, but we can't separate what you believe and what you do. How you live is a result of what you believe, for better or for worse. The verse we just read points out, uh, the verses that we just read point out that, that the reason the Israelites did not obey in the wilderness is because they did not believe God. Despite what God had said, despite what what they had seen, they didn't believe that God could provide for their needs. They didn't believe that God could protect them from their enemies. And God grew angry because they did not trust in his saving power. Because they doubted him. And when they doubted him, they were essentially calling him a liar. They didn't obey God because they didn't believe truth about God. Because true God-honoring obedience is impossible without sound doctrine, without sound theology, without believing God's word, trusting what he says about himself to be true. Now, you already know that. I know you do. Because when is it that you disobey God? Isn't it when you believe that your way is better than his? Or or when you doubt his ability to care for you? When you doubt that he is good? When When you doubt his love? Or when you believe that your your comfort is is more important than your character, more important than what is right and wrong? If I could boil it down to one thing, it would be this. You don't obey God when you put your trust in yourself. Your wisdom, your knowledge, your strength, more than God's. And when you place your hope in yourself, you have a fool for a savior. Because you can't do it, but you know that. Uh, if, we, if we had time, we'd go back to Psalm 77, the preceding psalm. And it deals with God's anger. I'm sorry, it deals with, with I'm sorry, our anger towards God. And it helps us to see it's okay to admit when you're angry with God. But to never stop there and think that your anger is justified. We must always ask what's driving our anger. Because it's only when we, we confess that we're, we're angry because we want to control God, because we want to be God, because, because we're angry with how he's doing things and not doing them our ways, 
That we're able to find forgiveness and a way forward and get out of that mess. Anger with God and those who speak God's word is is always evidence that we're struggling to believe what God declares to be true as true. It matters what you believe. It matters what you do, but it matters what you believe as well. But that's not enough. It's important, but we must go farther. So let me read verses 34 through 37. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the Most High God, their Redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. There's going to be times in your life where facts are are too hard to ignore any longer. There'll be times where you stop fighting God just because it's expedient to acknowledge the truth. But that doesn't mean that your heart is reconciled with His. There are, there are those who will flatter God with their, with their mouths. They, they will profess love for His truth. They, they're well studied. They can recite doctrine. They can dazzle others with their knowledge. They can teach Sunday school. Many will see them as leaders, but their hearts are far from Him. And God's not fooled. God's not impressed. Because, because knowledge without love is an abomination. It's a clashing symbol or clanging gong. God says that those who have knowledge but no love, they're nothing. Because God wants your heart. He, he demands your heart. There is no Christian who does not love God. You may say that you know the confession, that you've memorized the catechism. Your shelves might be lined with books by austere theologians. And you might be able to talk circles around others and debate fine points of theology. But my question is just this. What demon couldn't say that as well? Some of the most grievous discipline cases I've ever had the misfortune to be a part of have been with men who had incredible head knowledge but did not know the love of Jesus Christ. And for them, God's word was a tool to be used to manipulate and control other people. They were not true believers. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. Because true faith, it goes past uh, a mere agreement with the mind and it it descends those 15 inches um, down to the heart. God wants your life. He wants your obedience. It's important, but it's not enough. God wants your mind. He he wants you to understand His truth and, and to believe it. That's important, but it's not enough. Our God wants it all. He, he, he doesn't want just your life and your mind, but He wants your heart as well. Now men, I know that last part makes you a little uncomfortable. But what's the first and greatest commandment? It's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. 
He doesn't tell us to pick one. He demands all. Love is an essential part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, how do you hear this? How, how do you read Psalm 78 and not, not feel you, you, you fall so desperately short? I mean, if God just required one of these, which one of us could say, done it, met the standard, and yet he requires all three? <laughs> what hope is there? When you're honest with yourself, truly honest, when you set your Facebook side self aside and, and you look in the mirror, what is it that you struggle to believe? In those moments when you, when you look into your heart and you see how much you struggle to obey, how much you struggle to truly believe what God has said and to truly love Him, do you not in those moments feel... Like you're different from the rest of God's people. That maybe you're just somehow worse, a little bit more broken than everyone else around you. Like you'll never measure up, you'll never get it together. And that maybe God could never really love you. See, one of our greatest problems is is believing that God's grace isn't just sufficient for the world, but it's sufficient for me. That he, his love, his grace, his mercy is actually sufficient for someone with a heart as corrupted and defiled as my own. So what hope is there when you feel like you're the worst of sinners? Well, intertwined through this whole Psalm 78, and I really do encourage you to to take some time today or tomorrow and just read it in its entirety. And you'll see that, that woven through this whole Psalm, even as God rehearses so much of Israel's struggles and failures through their history, the message of His grace is met at every point along the way. Even when Israel grumbled and complained, God had mercy on them, verses 23 through 28. And then right at the center of the psalm, we find this. Yet he, that is God, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up his wrath. Verse 38. See, that's the message God wants us to to leave this psalm with. That's really the lesson of this parable. That that His mercy is for the worst of sinners. He wants you to believe this in your mind. He wants it to stir up your heart to love. And He wants it to drive you to honor Him with your life. See, often we fall victim to thinking that God wants us to fix everything on our own. Uh, like someone who thinks they must be perfectly clean before they take a shower. <laughs> we delay in coming to God because we want to take care of our sin first when He's the one and the only one who can take care of our sin. We think He's waiting for us to get everything sorted out before we come, but do you see the irony? We, we, we're tempted to rely on ourselves today so that we can rely on Him in the future. 
You see, the parable of Psalm 78 is all about how bad things go, how messed up they get when we rely on ourselves and not our God. And so God says, stop. Come to me for mercy today. Because God knows your weakness. God knows your sin. He he knows your tendency to believe lies and to doubt his truth. He knows the fickleness of your heart, and that's why he gives grace. Listen to verse 39, the reason our passage gives why God offers grace. Verse 38, he tells us about his grace. Verse 39, he tells us why. He says, because he remembered that we were but flesh, a wind that passes and dead does not come again. God offers mercy because he sees our weakness. Because he knows we need it. Because we can't do it on our own. Because our faith is weak and because our hearts wander. And so what he's saying is something like this. Don't let your failures prevent you from running to me. Every one of us, when we, when we give in to sin's temptations, we're, we're tempted to run from, to, from God. And he says, no, no, run to me. Run all the faster. And in coming, find grace, find forgiveness, find the love of a heavenly father. Perhaps the most curious part of Psalm 78 is how it ends. The last eight verses are all about how God took the place of priority from the tribe of Joseph, whom everyone expected to be elevated, and he gave it to the tribe of Judah. And then... Psalm 78 centers in on King David, whom God raised up from the sheepfolds. David, who was, who was the greatest king in Israel's history. He was humble, and he was small, but he chose to believe what others refused to believe, that God could deliver a giant into the hands of a shepherd boy. And God delighted in David because he had a heart that delighted in God. And David was exalted and David became king. He conquered Israel's enemies and and he delivered the people from oppression. When Israel was in trouble, in other words, the psalm tells us that mercy came in the form of a man. David became the emblem of of a deliverer that God's people need and what a deliverer looks like. And yet when the psalm was written, David had long been in the grave. And yet Israel's needs were were greater than ever. Not just physically, enslaved in a foreign land, but, but more importantly, spiritually, they were enslaved to their sin. Their lives were filled with disobedience. Their minds were controlled by lies and doubt. And their hearts were given over to false gods. They needed God's mercy more than ever. And again, God sent mercy in the form of a man. When Jesus came into this world, the Bible says he was like King David, but better. Everywhere David failed, Jesus succeeded. And as verse 38 says, Jesus, being compassionate, atoned for our sin and did not destroy us, but he restrained his anger. 
Because mercy for the greatest of sinners comes in the form of a man, a God-man, Jesus Christ. So how do you respond to a parable, to a, to a story with a lesson? Its purpose is, is to call you to respond with action. And so what's the correct response to this parable? Well, first, it's remember that God knows that you are mortal. He does not expect you to fix everything. He calls you to trust Him. He calls you to follow Him. And He invites you to plumb the depths of His mercy and His grace so that your heart might be captivated with just how wide and broad and deep His grace is. He invites you to to surrender all to Him, knowing that you are in safe hands. And there you will find something surprising. Because trying to be God, trying to be your own Savior is exhausting. Trying to fix everything, control everything, to be everything, to be everywhere is exhausting. And what you'll find when you finally surrender is that there is a sweet peace that comes in saying, God, I have no idea what you are going to do or how you're going to do it. But I know you love me. And I know you are good. I surrender. But I hope you don't stop there. Remember where the psalm begins. It's a parable for all generations. Parents, teach your kids to surrender to God. Teach them about His mercy. You can't make them believe. You can't control their hearts, their minds, or their lives. But you can make sure they hear about God's grace. You can make sure that they know that he understands their weakness and that he loves them and that he is compassionate, that he atones for their iniquity and that he restrains his anger. The Lord offers us a gift this morning to help us remember these three lessons. Verse 25 of Psalm 78 says, Man ate the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. And it's a reference to the manna in the wilderness. The psalmist is saying, this bread, God's provision, was meant to teach them about who God is and how he supplies their needs. When Jesus came, he said that he was the true manna and that whoever places their trust in him has eternal life. And then, as he was about to be betrayed... He took bread and wine and he left that with his disciples as reminders that that God's mercy came in the form of a man with a real body and real blood given and shed on the cross of Calvary that we might have our sins atoned for, that we might find God's mercy and his grace, that we might be forgiven. that he knows our weakness and our frailty and loves us still. 
Beyond that, the bread and the wine remind you that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that He lives in you and you are not alone in this world. That, that you can love God with your life because He is your strength. That you can love Him with your mind because His Word is dependable. And that you can love Him with your heart because He first loved you. Amen. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this gift from our God this morning. Please bow with me in prayer. Our gracious God, we, we understand that you want it all. You want our hearts, our minds, and our lives, and rightly so. For they rightly belong to you. And until we surrender to you, we can never be at peace. And so we ask that you would help us to daily obey you, to firmly believe your word, and to diligently love you. Grant us mercy when we fail. Fix our eyes on the man in whom mercy has come, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.